The President of the United States is the most powerful figure in the world. So living up to the prestige of the office is serious business, but that doesn't stop presidents from committing their fair share of gaffes. Whoops. Oh, goodness. And so in my state of the my state of the union or state my speech to the nation. That's a great asset. More inflation. What a stupid song. After all, presidents are humans just like you and me. I think by deflating my my kind of idea of these heroic presidents, it let me see all of them as as humans. Some who were very good humans with some flaws, some who were deeply flawed with a few good points. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the office of the presidency through the lens of modern art and creative prose. Question, what do former President Dwight D. Eisenhower and Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz have in common? I'll give you a hint. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Yes, they're both from Kansas. That fun fact actually inspired one of Colin Rafferty's essays in his new book called Execute the Office. It's an experimental, genre-busting collection of essays he wrote on every U.S. president. Colin is an English professor at the University of Mary Washington. Colin, of all the subjects to write about, how did it come to be that you're writing about presidents? They just don't seem to lend themselves to a collection of essays. It came out of a desire to experiment with nonfiction. Uh, I moved to Virginia in 2008 to begin teaching nonfiction writing at the University of Mary Washington, and it was a presidential election. And in fact, for the first time, Virginia was in play uh, in, a, in a long time. And so I found myself kind of surrounded by all these presidential happenings, both historical and, and contemporary. At the same time, I was looking to, to do something experimental with nonfiction writing. A lot of nonfiction writing at the time that was experimental or lyric in nature was memoir-based. And I think that was because people felt like they could be experimental if they were writing about their own lives, if they were on that kind of solid ground of knowing what they were exactly what they were writing about because it had happened to them. And I wanted to try to do something else to try to expand uh, that world. And so I thought, well, what if I wrote essays that were lyric in nature that took chances in, in form and in structure and in content, but were also eminently fact checkable. And so I thought, well, okay, if there's, if there's a way to do this, you know, I'll need a lot of subjects. And the president seemed like, you know, by virtue of living in Virginia, mm -hmm. a kind of ready-made, uh, a ready-made subject. Was there one where you took those chances and experimentation that really worked? There was there was one that I really loved that that didn't make it into the final book. Um, it was the original version of the of the Calvin Coolidge essay. And Coolidge, if anybody knows anything about Coolidge, it's this story about how he was so um, reticent and so so I think hated speaking so much that at a party or a reception, two women came up to him and said, "Mr. President, I have a bet with my friend that I can get you to say three words." And Coolidge said, "You lose." And I thought, okay, <laughs> this is this is great. What if I yeah. what if I wrote a uh, an essay about Coolidge that was entirely in two word fragments? Do you have it with you, even though it didn't make it into the actual oh, book? Oh, sure. Yeah, give me a second to to pull it up here. Um, I was looking for literary magazines to send essays to, and there was one magazine that sent out a call for submissions for wildly experimental work. And I thought, okay, I, um, I've got this, this Coolidge essay that feels wildly experimental. I'll send it to them. And so I, I sent it to them and got a response back from the editor a few months later that was, I know I asked for experimental work, but this is too much. <laughs> um, yeah. and I, I have always kind of carried that as a, um, as a badge of honor. Um, so here is Here's the first paragraph of it. So it's called You Lose. And just imagine a page full of, of two-word quotes. What can he say? He says the oath. At midnight, President Harding, newly dead, he stands, family room, and swears the oath. Faithfully execute, best ability, preserve, protect, 
defend, etc. You know the rest. And so his father, notary public, has made him president. And so it is, it's that kind of constant just start, stop, start, stop that I think drove that, that editor to, uh, to say, look, I, I asked for experimental, but not this. You have so much great experimental in here. The one you did on Dwight Eisenhower mm-hmm. is sort of a riff on um, the Wizard of Oz. You're from Kansas, so you know that's something you know about. Well, and it, it's something you know about because the, when you when you grow up in Kansas and you watch the Wizard of Oz every year, and then you leave Kansas, and the first thing that everyone says to you is, "Well, you're not in Kansas anymore, are you?" And and so I had this kind of evolving relationship with the movie where I wanted to to try to think about it more and more and think about what it meant. And I, I really fell in love with the line that that Glinda the Good Witch uses when she introduces Dorothy to the Munchkins. She says, you know, she came from above, she came very far, and Kansas, she said, is the name of the star. And I thought, oh well that's a that's 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 just a beautiful <laughs> phrase. That's that is the title to something. I don't know what it's the title to, but it's the yes. title to something. And then it was great you know, years later, uh, in working on this project to, to say, Oh, the, the Eisenhower essay, I could, I could write about Eisenhower as each of the characters in the wizard of Oz. And I could finally use that title that I've been carrying in my back pocket for years. And who was Eisenhower? Was he Dorothy? He was everybody. He was the farmhands. He was Auntie Em and Uncle Henry. He was Dorothy and the wizard and the scarecrow and the tin man and the cowardly lion. He was even Toto. Right. How was he Toto? He was Toto in the sense of, Pulling back the curtain on the wizard, which in this case was um, Eisenhower's farewell address, in which he famously warned against the military-industrial complex. Yes. And so, at the, the in in the book, the the little paragraph that that starts Eisenhower as Toto says, at the end he understands. In his farewell address, he warns of the military-industrial complex, shows its machinations at work, trying to pull back the curtain. What can one small dog nipping at the heels of giants do? Even he, once a titan, is worn down by eight years. He sees Vietnam. He is predicting here a map of Iraq, Afghanistan, more for us to discover behind the curtain. It's so interesting how you were playful and experimental and serious. And along the way, some very deep moments emerge along with the playful moments. You open with a haunting quotation from George Washington. He says, where are our men of ability? Why, why had that stayed with you? It really it came out of this very strange notion in America of that anybody could be president. And it just needed the right person to come forward to be the right president and to look at American history and see both how that has happened at certain points, but then how it also hasn't happened, right? The the sort of double-edged sword of it is anybody can grow up to be president. The problem is that anybody could grow up to be president. And so we have this this kind of this this problem of sometimes the wrong person gets into office for whatever reason, right? Whether it's a political party kind of manipulating things or if it's a an accident of illness or or an assassin's bullet, that it's sometimes you get this person in office who just doesn't know what to do and is overwhelmed or or thinks they know what to do and makes terrible mistakes. Were any of them particularly overwhelmed as you just looked into them? Sure. I mean, one of my the the heartbreaker of of the book for me at least is is Franklin Pierce, who is just, you know, he's one of those pre-Civil War presidents that nobody kind of knows anything about except that he was president, but just was this incredibly ambitious man who really wanted to be president and really wanted to lead the country and saw himself as as the right person and then got into office he was surrounded by tragedy his you know two of his children had already died his third children was killed in a train accident between his election and his inauguration and his wife just retreated into into mourning he was an alcoholic and his four years in the white house were just kind of marked by the country sliding ever more and more towards the civil war. And he's tragic both for the events of his life, but also for that confidence that he had in himself that he, yes, was, of course he wanted to be president. Of course he would be the right person. And then he was decidedly not the right person. As you researched each of them, you got to skim American history. Mm -hmm. Did something dawn on you as you were skimming, something that you hadn't fully realized before about 
how American history plays out? <laughs> uh, I feel like I should apologize to my my colleagues in the history department every time I, I try to talk about grand sweeps like this. But it was often fascinating, and, and this especially was a, a fascinating thing to see as the book was was moving towards publication after I had completed the manuscript and was at the press and being published to watch the January 6th insurrection happen, to see how despite rancorous differences and, you know, incredibly contested and bitter uh, elections, that the transition had always been made, that somebody had lost the election and had stepped down, whether it was out of the tradition of you don't take more than two terms or you know, after the constitution was amended, after their two terms was up, or they had lost, they always stepped down. Nobody stayed in past when they were supposed to stay. And to see that kind of transition constantly happen and and until last year happened peacefully, always felt like this this kind of strange miracle that it did work. And the 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 experiment kept going and kept kept succeeding in in, if nothing else, transitioning who was in charge of the country. So did you come away with your ideals intact or are you deflated by understanding that this procession of leaders of the country were were both flawed and mm-hmm. talented? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of the, the most interesting parts of this was I, I kind of knew in beginning this project that it was going to change the way I viewed both the office of the presidency and then the, the people who had held the office. But I was a little surprised by the way that it humanized almost every president in one direction or another, in the sense that the people I thought of as just sort of terrible, quasi-evil, all of them had some aspect of humanity to them, right? Either whether it was something that kind of created sympathy or if nothing else, you could just say like, wow, that is a terrible thing that person went through. That I I kind of expected. The thing I, I really didn't expect was with all the presidents that I had kind of idolized and looked up to as heroes, there was always something with each one of them that tarnished that. And I, I think it, it helped me, I think by deflating my my kind of idea of these heroic presidents, it let me see all of them as as humans, some who were very good humans with some flaws, some who were deeply flawed with a few good points. and But all of them were as human as 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 you or I, or or me the last essay in your mm-hmm. collection is called amendment last mm-hmm. dance about the dance that each new president does with their significant other to celebrate during the inauguration tell me about that why you chose to end the collection that way well it was it was a a nice way of just rounding out the collection in part because the collection starts with or not quite starts with but the washington essay is about dancing as well because George Washington apparently loved to dance. He and uh, and Martha would dance for for long stretches at at colonial balls. And in fact, even after Martha would tired out, he would he would dance with his officers' wives. He was a, a a tall guy who loved dancing. So so returning to the idea of the dance at the end felt like a nice way to finish the book. And it struck me that one of the strangest things about the presidency is that one of the very first things we have the president do is dance in front of us. And it's just, it's always very awkward, even the, the smoothest presidents. It's still very strange to kind of watch, here is this incredibly powerful person who just took the oath of office, who you know has maybe signed a few executive orders on his first day. Suddenly now, like, he's at a party and we're watching him dance as though it's, you know, this kind of homecoming ritual. And I, I, I love that idea of, of the president as awkward figure almost immediately because it seems very human, right? It's like this reminder of this is one of us doing this, right? This is a citizen of the country who, you know, wasn't born to the throne, who wasn't, you know, selected by a council, right? Who was picked by us to be the leader of us. And so finishing with the dance kind of let me get to that idea once more of this is a human, a a person who exists as a physical being with all the complications and and problems of that, who we have made the most powerful person in the country and often the world. Colin Rafferty is an English professor at the University of Mary Washington. He's also the author of Execute the Office, Essays with Presidents. 
In 2016, Eric Drummond-Smith, a political science professor at the University of Virginia College at Wise in Appalachia, curated an exhibit at the William King Museum in Abingdon, Virginia. It was called the Cherry Bounce Show, and the idea was to round up artists from all over Appalachia to create modern artwork with one small stipulation. Each one had to be inspired by one of the presidential elections. I, I began to think about kind of the romanticized early republic when we seem to have enjoyed elections a lot more than we do these days. And, yeah. and uh, that cross-referenced this idea of modern art by Appalachians that I'm, I'm pretty passionate about. I like the idea of loving elections and celebrating democracy no matter what our ideological preferences are. And I love the idea of Appalachians actively, and artists in general, actively reinterpreting both politics and art from the past. Because you teach in Appalachia. Yes, ma'am. And the William King Museum in Abingdon, Virginia is in Appalachia. How did you go about finding enough Appalachian artists to populate this series? That was a very exhausting, like, two or three week long process, especially because yeah. I wanted diversity. I wanted diversity of locations all over greater Appalachia, and I wanted people from different backgrounds. Uh, I was looking to get people who were kind of working artists, like all they did was art, and then those who also were engaged more in like, what we often think of as the intersection of art and craft, so like printmakers who work in printing presses. Um, and I wanted people who were academic artists, who, who as, as I always say, joke, that's how you pay for the insurance, you know, and, and yeah. you're, you're a teaching artist. You ended up calling this exhibit the Cherry Bounce Show. Yes. What's Cherry Bounce mean? Cherry Bounce is a kind of moonshine. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a very, very fancy kind of moonshine. It takes a lot of work to make, apparently. I've never made it. Let me go in and, and clarify. <laughs> and so it tended to be used in certain areas of Appalachia, uh, like North Georgia and, and uh, Western North Carolina, for the very celebratory moments. Right. And, and election days, it was kind of very common that that would be like the the punch would be a cherry bounce punch in a lot of parts of the mountains. Oh, what a cool idea. Did you manage to serve any during the exhibition? Uh, allegedly, there might have been some prepared and delivered <laughs> by a host of different craftspeople. Yeah. And then one of the local bars in Abingdon, a restaurant bar that is superb rain, their bartender is kind of a, a craftsman of cocktails and designed a number of different whiskey-based cocktails that were, so they're not proper moonshine, but like bourbons, basically, and, and, and rye whiskeys that used the same kinds of processes to kind of explore the idea in a more modern context. So after you found all these artists, you mm -hmm. assigned each one to one of the presidential elections from the past. How many is that? 40? Oh, golly. Uh, I'm thinking it was 43 at the time, 30, 43, 44. And did you give them anything for background or inspiration when you said, hey, you've got Grover Cleveland, for instance? Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, we, what I did it was for each election, I did kind of a deep dive into some art associated with elections. And mostly you get you get a lot of posters, a lot of newspaper art, advertisements, all the way up to bumper stickers and, and buttons, some really funny buttons actually. Um, and then I also told the artists if they wanted to do their own research, build upon what we had, we had dug up for them, they were more than welcome to do that. What were some of the buttons you came across that you thought were funny? My favorite, I mean, my favorite <laughs> will always be Barry Goldwater buttons because they are, they're very, very simple. They're often like just black or white with like AUH2O. So AU, the chemical symbol for gold, H2O water. And I don't know why oh. I love that so much, but I love it. Yes, because um, nobody would get it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess. I mean, you, like a bunch of physicists and chemists were like, oh, yeah, they got me. <laughs> Um, I, and I also, I still will always love, uh, the Eisenhower, I like Ike buttons. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, man, people who didn't like Thomas Jefferson really didn't like him. And they made some pretty crazy art. 
Like a lot of them would refer to his sexual improprieties and his his relationships with uh, his African-American slaves. And they were very much in the open. They're in newspapers, they're in posters. But if you look at elections like in the early Republic, but, but really at any point, there's a lot of vitriol and almost grotesque campaign art. It's so interesting that you're talking about politics and art. I don't normally think about art and politics Mm -hmm. as an important pairing, but really there's so much. I I feel that when we see architecture and we see great works of art, a gigantic proportion of those, historically speaking, have been about affirming or critiquing political actors. And uh, we, we see it not just in the visual arts, but the musical arts, the dramatic arts. I, you know, I teach, okay. I teach introduction to political philosophy. You know, the very first thing we read is the play Antigone. Because I, I see in that, like, the beginnings of political thought in the West really are in Greek drama. And, and we also, if you look at, think of, like, every single ancient Greek building you can think of in some way, shape, or form, is affirming some political actor or state or position. And that's true all over the world. So tell me about some of the artists in your exhibit and what they made to depict their president or their presidential contest. I would love to, because this is the fun part. Um, <laughs> Mira Hageze, who was, uh, she at the time she lived in Lexington, Virginia. She's recently moved to Chicago, Illinois. But um, she got the election of 1912. And that, of course, is the famous election that involves uh, the Bull Moose Party, right? And, and the challenge, the three-way presidential race. I believe it was Woodrow Wilson, Taft, and Teddy Roosevelt. And it, so it turns into arguably the most intensely contested three-party election in American history. And of course, Wilson ends up winning. But what uh, Amira did was she used printmaking and collage to create her piece. So she did some printing on pieces of acetate. I think it was acetate, a clear plastic material, and then layered it with all three presidents so that it looks like one composition until you look at it from an angle. And then you can see it, it, it breaks away and you see the three different faces pretty clearly. And then also there are different uh, photographic montages around the edge. It's incredibly complicated and it's really, really beautiful piece. You're actually an artist yourself and you drew Taft. Did you give yourself Taft on purpose? I got Taft partly because I did. I, I probably cheated a little bit. I we, we waited to give me what was last in order to make sure that it was, because there were a few people we were like, this just, this, this, race works well with their style of art. Uh, And um, the image that stood out to me is a tobacco card, just like an old baseball card, basically. But instead of a baseball player, it's not Honus Wagner. It's, it's a extreme close up of, of Taft's face. And he's got his little double chin and uh, big cheeks that are glowing peachy red, like, like Santa Claus on like a very beautiful like blue-green background, and all it says is Bill. And it's the most charming picture ever. That was one of the things that we included for the, the pack, so to speak, with that election. What does that mean, tobacco card? Oh, uh, just like, um, well, when I was a kid. Like bubble gum? Yeah, well, well, yeah, exactly, like a bubble gum card. So like when I was a kid, I got my baseball cards and there was bubble gum. Back in the early days of baseball cards, uh, there were not just baseball cards, but all sorts of different, you know, politicians and historical events. But instead of bubble gum, you would have chewing tobacco <laughs> or, or cigarettes. Right, yeah. of course. <laughs> I know, right? It's kind of hilarious yeah. when you think about it. Right. Um, and so I kept working on that painting forever. I, I painted on an, uh, I used acrylic on um, canvas, and I did probably five or six versions of it, and I couldn't get it right and I came into the studio one day, cussing a little bit, and I looked at it and I'm like, oh, I accidentally have painted a, like a little demon or a devil. So it ended up very different than, than the inspiration. But the idea became one of 
the juxtaposition of the way politicians present themselves, even the good ones, and the way that they often end up having to exercise power, and certainly how you have to get power, you know, and, and at best you're, you're a, a, little, a little bit devilish in that process. And there's, uh, what's the old saying, democracy is the worst of all systems except for all the rest. Uh, and, yeah. and that's what it kind of became, uh, I guess, embedded in it subconsciously. And tell me about the hootenanny. You also <laughs> had a hootenanny on the election day of 2016. We did. We 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 invited some bluegrass musicians. We got some catering, and we uh, invited press and academics and students and the community to come have a party after they voted. And that's really yeah. what we did. Is we set up TVs showing all the major news networks, and we all watched the election together. And, of course, as will happen with elections, some people got happier as the night went on and some people got morose <laughs> and, uh, and, and went home. So, but I, but I, think, I think it was a really, it was a, a wonderful experiment in trying to have this fully communal experience with elections. It was, it was wonderful. Did working on the exhibit and the artwork change how you look at presidents and presidential elections? Certainly it gave me more insight into political communication and how, how a huge part of how the powerful in any electoral cycle, how they communicate to the public is not in speeches or in debates. It's, it's in ways that are much more kind of fundamentally instinctive and visual or, or j just how significant those are to most people. And it also gave me a sense that we are not that radically different than our ancestors two centuries ago. And, and the, the connective tissue of presidential elections as this weird, it's a universal American experience, maybe the, the only election that's all Americans and yet it, it also is experienced in different ways at different times by different people. It, it, was, it was surreal, so. Well, Eric Drummond-Smith, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. It's been my distinct pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Drummond-Smith is a political science professor at the University of Virginia College at Wise. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. In grade school, many of us learned how the Founding Fathers carefully defined the office of the presidency. But my next guest says the presidency was actually shaped by ordinary people, not the political elite. Nathaniel Green is a history professor at Northern Virginia Community College and the author of The Man of the People, Political Dissent and the Making of the American Presidency. Well, it's certainly true that early presidents and early political thinkers thought a lot about the presidency. But it's also true that people outside of the presidency who would never be president also thought a great deal about the office as well. Um, and more to the point, they, they argued uh, <laughs> viciously over, over what they thought was happening to the country or would happen to the country. It's conflict, uh, not consensus, that really makes the presidential office. And it's conflict that really creates America in a sense. It, it's, conflict is this defining feature of the American political landscape, not the consensus that we often uh, imagine. How frustrated did you find the early presidents to be with the public criticism that surrounded them? Uh, they're all very frustrated with it. Um, and I think that is a universal. Presidents don't like to be criticized, but it's the criticism that really drives the public discussion over the fate of the country and sort of the presidency's place within it. So yeah, uh, none of these early presidents like this criticism. Um, they all, in various ways, uh, try to either ignore it, delegitimize it, try to silence it, but they can't. And so ultimately, the context that surrounds them is something they can never really control, but it ex exerts a, uh, an immense influence over what the presidency becomes. You write that, for example, 
The first president, George Washington, experienced incredible criticism when he brokered a deal with the British that came to be called the Jay Treaty. This was basically to stop the British from plundering American ships and to get them out of the Northwest Territory. Seemed like a great idea, but his opponents were furious. So, yeah, um, one of the things that, that most infuriated the critics of, of the Jay Treaty was uh, that it really doesn't actually address the issue of impressment, which is this forcible enlistment of uh, American sailors on the high seas into the British, in, into the British Navy. But more to the point, um, there were critics um, who, who argued that Washington's reaction to this criticism was, was severely lacking when critics published their reservations about this treaty. Uh, some of them even took to the streets to protest this. Washington never really saw that engagement as legitimate. But what's really noteworthy about this criticism is, is not just that they're criticizing the Jay Treaty, but that they're making a very specific point about the relationship between the people and the presidency that needs to sort of lay the groundwork for the relationship between the people and the government at large. The reason why the American people deserve to be listened to and critics of the Jay Treaty deserve to be listened to, they argue, is that if a president can just ignore critics, then we don't really have a republic anymore. Um, elected leaders have to listen to and engage with the people. That's what makes this whole thing work. Um, and in so doing, they're really using the presidency to articulate a particular relationship b between the American people um, and the government that they vest with, with, with power. Um, that dissenting from the actions of government is a part of holding the government to account, to ensuring that it is always the possession of, of the American people. So it's a, it's a very important moment both in the history of the presidency and in sort of this broader development of, of, of American democracy. So Jefferson is one of the staunch opponents of the Jay Treaty and Washington for brokering this deal. And yet when he takes office, he too becomes the object of swirling criticism. Jefferson is a Virginian. Jefferson is also the author of the Declaration of Independence, those immortal words, all men are created equal. And early in the 1790s, Jefferson um, receives a letter from Benjamin Banneker, who is a black mathematician, who actually quotes the Declaration of Independence back to Jefferson and holds him to account, basically asks him in so many words, how, can you, how could you have written those words and still hold black people in bondage? And the letter that Banneker writes to him uh, includes an almanac, some of uh, Benjamin Banneker's own, own work. And Jefferson writes him back. Uh, he says, nobody wishes more than I do to see such proofs as you exhibit that nature has given to our black brethren talents equal to those of the other colors of men and that the appearance of a want of them is owing merely to the degraded condition of their existence both in Africa and America. Jefferson's letter is going to become public knowledge. And in the election of 1796, a opponent of Jefferson's, a Federalist from South Carolina uh, by the name of William Lofton Smith, is going to quote both from Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, which was published previously, and then this letter that he writes to, to Banneker. And Smith is going to use this to argue that Jefferson really should not be president because his ideas about equality, his ideas about, about race are simply too, too dangerous. Dangerous how? Dangerous because it's going to essentially give black people um, ideas about equality and, and liberty, that these ideas should belong to them as well. Um, and so these kinds of attacks on Jefferson continue even after his election in 1800. And they're not simply attacks on him, of course. They're attacks on <laughs> free and enslaved black people. And they're a not-so-subtle way of, of articulating exactly what the American nation is, according to many of Jefferson's critics. How confusing, right? Contradictory that Jefferson is both a slaveholder, but people are also criticizing him for espousing a more egalitarian point of view about the races. 
it's absolutely horrific all the way around. Um, the role of race in really shaping this conversation um, is emphasized really more and more as commentators on the presidency, either the critics of a sitting president or defenders of a sitting president, really try to articulate who is an American and, and who isn't and who poses a threat. The presidency becomes this powerful site where commentators across partisan political lines can express this kind of this this aspiration for national unity, but also make it very clear what their vision of an America ultimately is. And it's a vision that includes who belongs um, and who doesn't, um, who is really an American and who is who is a threat. That's a, a common theme that really runs throughout the history of, of the presidency as it's debated and argued and made and remade um, over the course of of decades. And how does this play out with the next few presidents after Jefferson, right? Sure. Yeah. So the United States enters the War of 1812 with Great Britain, and that is also a very divisive war. There are many in the United States who think that the war from the beginning is folly, particularly in the North. Uh, But there are Republicans who argue that it is the duty of every patriotic American to answer the call to war when the president issues it. Out of the war, Andrew Jackson emerges as a hero. And my research into Jackson really focuses on, again, the kind of commentary that that swirls around Jackson in the 1820s and 30s, not only about him as a man, but also what it means for the country if he is chosen as the president. Jackson's supporters argue that Jackson is just the man that, that the country needs at this time. He is a man who acts dynamically, boldly, and yes, violently at times, but he does it in a way that that inspires people to, to follow him and to, to follow his lead. They argue that he is just the man to unite the country, but his critics argue that he is exactly the kind of violent person. He himself is an enslaver. He is a white supremacist. He is a butcher of indigenous people. And his critics bring this up time and again to say he is indicative of exactly the kind of violence that's tearing our country apart. Um, This becomes the way that, that people really talk about and argue about what America is in the 1820s and 30s and where it is possibly headed. Do you think it is possible for any U.S. president to live up to the high-minded ideals embodied by our understanding of what the presidency should be and what the realities of the office are? No. <laughs> no. There's no way for, for any human being to live up to this. There's no possible way for one human being to be all things to, to all people. But ironically, that's that doesn't at all hinder the the prestige of the office. In fact, that's what fuels it. That's what gives the presidency its prestige, that we argue over it. We, we argue over what it means to be an American. We're, we're convinced that being an American means something, and it should mean something. We all, on some level, you know, aspire to a, a, a kind of unity. We can all kind of agree. We can all come together as one people. But that's simply never going to happen. And the conflict is really what drives the story, not the consensus. And that's true of... America uh, writ large, uh, but it's also true of, of the presidency. As you're saying that, and as you've studied the various presidencies, is there any hope of being less divisive, or is that the price of doing it the way we've chosen to do it? Well, just because Americans have always been divided over what what it means to be an American and what the presidency should be, to my mind, that doesn't mean that every vision of America is sort of either equally valid or equally invalid. I think there is a right and a wrong. We are very divided today, but I don't think that the division encompasses equally valid or equally true visions of of what a good society, a democratic society looks like. The conflict um, has always been a part of American history and it has shaped what the presidency has become. Um, I, I do think that we are capable of making real improvements to our society and to our world. Um, and I do think that the presidency is capable of embodying a more democratic and a better 
society. But I also don't think that we need the presidency to do all of the symbolic and political work that it's done in the past. We need to have a better understanding of our past. We need to have a better understanding of our history. And that has to include the office of the presidency. And it can't just be limited to stories of, of the powerful. It also has to include stories of conflict that indelibly shaped who we have become uh, and what the presidency has become. And I think that that history, I hope, can inform our way forward. And maybe it's a way forward that doesn't look anything like what has been in the past. But we can't get there until we have a, a clearer sense of that past. And I hope that in some small way, my book contributes to that. Nathaniel Green, this is so helpful. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. It's been a delight to be here. Thank you for having me. Nathaniel Green is a history professor at Northern Virginia Community College. He's the author of The Man of the People, Political Dissent and the Making of the American Presidency. Coming up next, presidents, political cartoons, and the pandemic. Loaded with humor and biting satire, political cartoons have a long history of holding people in power to account. What makes them so effective? My next guest says the answer lies in the magic of visual metaphors. Fran Hassensell studies political cartoons and is a communication and theater arts professor at Old Dominion University. Metaphors, we now know, are more than just a stylistic you know, device, a figure of speech, but we know that they can evoke emotions. And we now know from uh, our studies of mapping the brain and cognitive kinds of processing that they're actually a part of how we learn and how we decode and comprehend and create meaning. Give me examples of metaphors, for instance. Just rattle off a few. Well, uh, most common metaphor probably, uh, when you speak of someone as being a dog or calling someone a fox, metaphors that you know say that a person is a particular uh, type of uh, treat or food. Biden uh, is uh, seen now in cartoons as a kind of flimflam man, promising great cures, but has a somewhat suspicious audience. And that was true of, of Trump, too. He was pictured as a flimflam man, particularly in his advocacy of particular kinds of treatment for COVID. You're actually now studying political cartoonists and how they're portraying COVID as an enemy. Yes. What are you seeing? Well, basically, the convention of COVID as being a sphere and with little suction-type cup protrusions and uh, sometimes sort of stick-like arms and legs. And generally, they're shown in a swarm. And of course, that makes sense because we don't generally think of an isolated germ. We think of a you know group or a crowd or a swarm of germs. You know, we we build certain kinds of expectations, and cartoonists use these, you know, to quickly identify a character. Conventions arise on Obama's ears, other features that, uh, you know, presidents or world leaders have. Those get a little bit exaggerated, or they become kind of what we say commonplace. All cartoonists use them. I would think that most of the political cartoons revolving around COVID would be less the picture of the invading cell and more some scene about how COVID is being treated on the national level. Particularly in the last administration, the cartoonists portrayed, obviously, uh, Trump and his relationship to covid even when he was in the hospital, uh, one cartoon shows the uh, cleaning person with, you know, the cart of equipment is in his room and is tidying up. And uh, he's reaching for the bleach bottle that is on her cart with the idea that, uh, ah, my cure has arrived. <laughs> but the dominant kind of image in, uh, at least in terms of COVID, has been the image, not surprisingly, of death. So describe a few of those cartoons. Okay, one of the cartoons that we have, we have Trump sitting on a uh, little mountain of skulls. He has shrunk. 
And this is most visibly shown by his tie being, you know, very long, sometimes dragging on the ground. And that's, a, you know, an easy enough metaphor to uh, indicate that we're not dealing with a particularly short person here. We're dealing with a shrinking person. Anyway, the cartoon I'm referring to is basically Trump is sitting on this mountain of skulls and he's pointing over at a bird that represents uh, Twitter and he's saying, look over there. And uh, he's obviously uh, distracting us from uh, the image of uh, the skulls. Have you found any political cartoons that relate to the Biden administration dealing with the COVID pandemic? Basically, uh, most of the cartoons relate more to his efforts to get legislation uh, passed in uh, Congress. Uh, He comes and he's knocking on the door and a little girl greets him at the door. She's there with her dog. And uh, he's wearing a, uh, you know, poster board, sign board that says uh, Dr. Flimflam's Magic Elixir Fixer. And, and then it says trillion dollar bill free. And he's holding up a, uh, a bottle and uh, the bottle has uh, fumes coming from it. And the little girl's response is, sorry. But my dad says that something that seems to be too good to be true probably isn't. (laughs) So basically, I've seen more uh, cartoons dealing with uh, Biden's efforts to uh, get bills passed, uh, fix the economy. He does have an image of death. He's shown with a defibrillator trying to uh, reconnect and restart his Build Back Better campaign. And the nurse is saying to him, uh, Mr. President, he's been dead for a couple of weeks. We've gone from about a thousand working political cartoonists a hundred years ago to really no more than 30 full-time paid newspaper-based jobs for editorial cartoonists. Where did they go? Most of them have gone freelance. In other words, they're no longer uh, on the employ of a given newspaper. They're basically uh, selling to whomever will purchase. And uh, these cartoons often are also uh, spread on the Internet. Uh, It's not difficult to capture the image and to uh, tweet it or to uh, put it in uh, Facebook or wherever. And, of course, policing and enforcing this is a tremendous uh, task and uh, not a high priority on the part of uh, the various vendors. So the cartoons get disseminated far beyond the uh, newspaper. There's probably about 350 uh, active cartoonists. And yes, it is not a a growth business. (laughs) What do you think we're losing, though, as we've lost so many full-time paid editorial cartoonists? The political cartoon has a kind of a, a two-pronged approach. It certainly touches on our emotions and on our feelings. But we now know from uh, cognitive psychology that it taps into our uh, epistemology, our way we learn. We don't necessarily get up in the morning and start thinking about uh, some of these events that are happening, um, you know, because in the morning we usually running late, and so we're rushed a little bit, and uh, there's, you know, getting organized and whatever. But the cartoon basically uh, intrudes on our thinking and on our feelings and, uh, in effect, kind of jabs us so that, oh, yeah, things are not going well in Congress. Oh, yeah, there's... uh, a dangerous situation out there. So basically it pulls on our attention. It pulls us in and uh, focuses us on uh, a particular concern or a particular event. And with that attention, we may have it accompanied with some feelings or emotional responses. Uh, We might say, oh, that's really clever or gee, that's too bad or whatever our, you know, our response is going to be. So true, so true. 
Well, Fran Hassensel, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I love talking about cartoons, and uh, they may be uh, diminished, but they're still out there, and uh, beware, uh, Tammany Hall, Thomas Nass did bring you down. Every little chink in the armor uh, can change things. As Mark Twain said, against the assault of laughter, nothing can stand. (laughs) That's right. Fran Hassensel is a communication and theater arts professor at Old Dominion University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. Special thanks this week to Todd Washburn at WHRO. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.